Introduction The following curious collection I have gathered together during several years reading in out-of-the-way corners. Manuscripts, in public and private libraries, old books picked up on dusty bookstalls, or carried away as prizes from the battlefield of the auction room, even pencilings on the inside of tattered bindings, all have been laid under contribution. I trust this medley, or potpourri, of snatches of song grave and gay, will prove as interesting to my readers as they have been to myself. They claim attention on various grounds. Some are the works of well-known men, such as Anthony Munday and Warren Hastings. Some are bitter political squibs, such, for instance, as the Satire Against the Scots, page 47. Some, again, are exquisitely beautiful, as The Dirge, page 53. A few have appeared in different collections, but none of my readers, I will undertake to say, have seen more than a half-dozen or so. With these few words I beg to introduce volume one of the Collectania Adamantiae, Edmund Goldsmid, Edinburgh, March 6, 1884. I, Beauties Fort Two, My Bonnie Lass, Thine I Three, Anthony Munday's Poem on the Captivity of John Fox Four, Care for Thy Soul V, Megliora Spiro Six, A Letter from the Duke of Monmouth to the King Seven, The King's Answer Eight, An Epitaph on Dundee Nine, The Robber Robbed X, Ah, The Shepherd's Mournful Fate Eleven, Verses to a Friend Twelve, A Panegyric upon Oats Thirteen, The Miracle Fourteen, The Patriots Fifteen, Justice and Masquerade Sixteen, The Brawny Bishop's Lament Seventeen, The Poor Blind Boy Eighteen, The Inniskilling Regiment Nineteen, A Ballad on the Fleet XX, On Mr. Fox and Mr. Hastings Twenty-One, an Imitation of Horace, Book 2, Ode 1622. Epitaph on Dr. Johnson, 23. Verses upon the Road, 24. Satyr on the Scots, 25. The Marseillaise, 26. A Dirge Beauty's Fort. From an Anonymous MS. Lately in possession of J. P. Collier, Esq. F.S.A. When raging love, with fierce assault, strikes at fair beauty's gate, what army has she to resist and keep her court and state? She calleth first on chastity to lend her help in time, and prudence no less summons she to meet her foes so trim. And female courage she always doth bring unto the wall, to blow the trump in her dismay, fearing her fort may fall. On force of ward she much relies her foe without to keep, and parleyeth with her two bright eyes when they her dyke would leap. Yet needless the more she strives, the less she keeps him out, for she hath traitors in her camp that keep her still in doubt. The first and worst of these the flesh, then woman's vanity that still is caught within the mesh of guy full flattery. These traitors ope the gate at length, and in, with sword in hand, came raging love, and all her strength no longer can withstand. Prudence and chastity both to submit unto the foe, and female courage not can do but down her walls must go. She needs must yield her castle strong, and love triumphs once more. It's only what the boy hath done a thousand times before. None may resist his mighty power, and though a boy, and blind, he knows to chase a half by hour when maidens must be kinned. My bonny lass, thine eye, by Thomas Lodge, M.D. Footnote, the original of this poem not being within my reach at present, I have inserted Professor Arbor's modern version. My bonny lass, thine eye so sly, hath made me sorrow so. Thy crimson cheeks, my dear, 
so clear, have so much wrought my woe. Thy pleasing smiles and grace, thy face, have ravished so my sprites, that life is grown to not through thought of love, which me affrights. For fancy's flames of fire aspire unto such furious power, as but the tears I shed make dead, the brands would me devour. I should consume to not through thought of thy fair shining eye, thy cheeks, thy pleasing smiles, the wiles that forced my heart to die. Thy grace, thy face, the part where art stands gazing still to see the wondrous gifts and power, each hour, that hath bewitched me. Anthony Monday's Poem on the Captivity of John Fox Leaving at large all fables vainly us, all trifling toys that do no truth import. Lo, hear how the end, at length, though long diffused, unfoldeth plainer rare and true report, to glad those minds who seek their country's wealth by proffered pains to enlarge its happy health. At Rome I was when Fox did there arrive. Therefore I may sufficiently express what gallant joy his deeds did there revive in the hearts of those which heard his valiantness, and how the Pope did recompense his pains, and letters gave to move his greater gains. But yet I know that many don't misdoubt that those his pains are fables, and untrue. Not only I in this will bear him out, but divers more that did his patents view, and unto those so boldly I dare say that not but truth John Fox Clothier Bure. Besides, there's one was slave with him in thrall lately returned into our native land. This witness can this matter perfect all, what needeth more? For witness he may stand and thus I end, unfolding what I know. The other man more larger proof can show. Hanos Elit Arts the above lines by Anthony Munday are omitted by Hacklett in his reprint of the captivity of John Fox in his Principal English Voyages, Volume 2, page 136, edition 1598-1600. John Fox, of Woodbridge, gunner of the Three Half Moons, was made prisoner by the Turks in 1563, escaped with 266 other Christians in 1577. Care for thy soul care for thy soul, as thing of greatest price. Made to the endy to taste of power divine, devoid of guilt, abhorring sin and vice, apt by God's grace to virtue to incline, care for it so, as by thy wretchless train it be not brought to taste eternal pain. Care for thy corpse, body, but chiefly for soul's sake, not of excess, sustaining food is best to vanquish pride, but comely clothing take. Seek after skill, deep ignorance detest, Care so, I say, the flesh to feed and cloth, that thou harm not thy soul and body both. Care for the world, to do thy body right. Back not thy w white t to win by wicked ways. Seek not to oppress the weak by wrongful might. To pay thy due, do banish all delays. Care to dispend according to thy store, and in like sort, be mindful of the poor. Care for thy soul, as for thy chiefest stay. Care for thy body, for the soul's avail. Care for the world, for body's help alway. Care yet but so as virtue may prevail. Care in such sort, that thou be sure of this. Care keep the knot from heaven and heavenly bliss. Megliora Spiro By Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford Faction that ever dwells in court where wit excels, hath set defiance. Fortune and love have sworn that they were never born of one alliance. Cupid, which doth aspire to be god of desire, swears he. Gives laws that where his arrows hit, some joy, some sorrow it, fortune no cause. Fortune swears. Weakest hearts, the books of Cupid's arts. Turned with her wheel, senseless themselves shall prove. Venture hath place in love. 
Ask them that feel. This discord it begot atheists, that honor not. Nature thought good fortune shall ever dwell in court where wits excel. Love keep the wood. So to the wood went I, with love to live and die, fortunes forlorn. Experience of my youth made me think humble truth in deserts born. My saint I keep to me, and Joan herself is free, Joan fair and true. She that doth only move passions of love with love. Fortune. Adieu. A letter from the Duke of Monmouth to the king. Discracked, undone, forlorn, made fortune sport, banished your kingdom first, and then your court, out of my places turned, and out of doors, and made the meanest of your sons of whores, the scene of laughter, and the common chats of your salt bitches, and your other brats, forked to a private life, to whore and drink, on my past grandeur and my follies think, would I had been the brat of some mean drab whom fear or chance had cows to choke or stab, rather than be the issue of a king, and, by him made so wretched, scorned a thing. How little cause has mankind to be proud of noble birth, the idol of the crowd! Have I abroad in battle's honor one to be at home dishonorably undone? Marked with a star and garter, and made fine with all those gaudy trifles once called mine, your hobby horses, one, and your joys of state, and now become the object of your hate. But d e sir, I'll be legitimate. I was your darling, but against your will, and know that I will be the people still. And when you're dead, I and my friends, the rout, will with my popish uncle try about, and to my troubles this one comfort bring, next after you, bye, I will be king. Footnote 1. At the age of sixteen he was made master of the horse. The king's answer. Ungrateful boy, I will not call thee son, Thou hast thyself unhappily undone, and thy complaints serve but to show thee more, how much thou hast in rag thy father's whore. Resent it not, shake not thy addle head, and be no more by clubs and rascals led. Have I made thee the darling of my joys, the prettiest and the loosiest of my boys? Have I so oft sent thee with cost to France, to take new dresses up, and learn to dance? Have I given thee a ribbon and a star, and sent thee like a meteor to the war? Have I done all that royal dad could do, and do you threaten now to be untrue? But say I did with thy fond mother sport, to the same kindness others had resort. Twas my good nature, and I meant her fame, to shelter thee under my royal name. Alas! I never got one brat alone, my mistresses all are by each fop well known, and I still willing all the brats to own. I made thee once, tis true, the post of grace, and stuck upon the every mighty place each glittering office, till thy heavy brow grew dull with honor, and my power low. I spangled thee with favors, hung thy nose with rings of gold and pearl, till all grew foes by secret envy at thy growing state. I lost my safety when I made thee great. There's not the least injustice to you shown. You must be ruined to secure my throne. Office is but a fickle grace, the badge bestowed by fits, and snatched away in rage. And sure that livery which I give my slaves I may take from him when my Portsmouth raves. Thou art a creature of my own creation, then swallow this without capitulation. If you with feigned wrongs still keep a clutter, and make the people for your sake to mutter, for my own comfort, but your trouble, no, gee, fish, I'll send you to the shades below. An epitaph on Dundee. English by Mr. Dryden. O last and best of Scots! Who didst maintain thy country's freedom from a foreign reign? New people fill the land now thou art gone, new gods the temples, 
and new kings the throne. Scotland and thou did each and other live, thou wouldst not her, nor could she thee survive. Farewell, who living didst support the state, and couldst not fall but with thy country's fate. The robber robbed. I, a certain priest had hoarded up a mass of secret gold, and where he might bestow it safe he knew not to be bold. Two, at last it came into his thought to lock it in a chest within the chancel, and he wrote thereon, Hic Deus Est. 3. A merry grig, whose greedy mind did long for such a prey, respecting not the sacred words that on the casket lay. 4. Took out the gold, and blowing out the priest's inscript thereon, wrote, Resurrects it, non est hic, your god is rose and gone. Ah, the shepherd's mournful fate. Ah, the shepherd's mournful fate. When doomed to love, and doomed to languish, to bear the scornful fair one's hate nor dare disclose his anguish. Yet eager looks, and dying sighs, my secret soul discover, while rapture trembling through my eyes reveals how much I love her. The tender glance, the reddening cheek, o'er spread with rising blushes, a thousand various ways they speak a thousand various wishes. For, oh, that form so heavenly fair, those languid eyes so sweetly smiling, that artless blush, and modest air, so artfully beguiling. 2. Thy every look and every grace so charms weener I view thee, till death overtake me in the chase still will my hopes pursue thee, then when my tedious hours are past be this last blessing given, lo at thy feet to breathe my last, and die in sight of heaven. Footnote 2. Ars Solare Artem. Some verses to a friend who twice ventured on marriage. By Thomas Brown. The husband's the pilot, the wife is the ocean, he always in danger, she always in motion and he that in wedlock twice hazards his carcass twice ventures the drowning, and faith, that's a hard case. Even at our weapons the females defeat us, and death, only death, can sign our quietus. Not to tell you sad stories of liberty lost, our mirth is all palled, and our measures all crossed. that pagan confinement, that damnable station, suits no other states or degrees in the nation. The Levite it keeps from parochial duty, for who can at once mind religion and beauty? The rich it alarms with expenses and trouble, and a poor beast, you know, can scarce carry double. Twas invented, they tell you, to keep us from falling, oh the virtues and graces of shrill caterwauling. How it palls in your gain! But pray, how do you know, sir, how often your neighbor breaks in your enclosure? For this is the principal comforts of marriage, you must eat though a hundred have spit in your porridge. If at night you're inactive, or fail in performing, enter thunder and lightning, and bloodshed, next morning, lust the bone of your shanks, O oh dear Mr. Horner, this comes of your sinning with crape in a corner. Then to make up the breach all your strength you must rally, and labor and sweat like a slave in a gaily, and still you must charge, O oh blessed condition, though you know, to your cost, you've no more ammunition, till at last the poor fool of a mortified man is unable to make a poor flash in the pan. Fire, flood, and female, begin with a letter, but for all the world's not a farthing the better. Your flood is soon gone, and your fire you must humble, if into flame store of water you tumble. But to cure the damned lust of your wife's titillation, you may use all the engines and pumps in the nation, as well you may pee, out the last conflagration. And thus I have sent you my thoughts of the matter, you may judge as you please, I scorn for to flatter, I could say much more, 
but here ends the chapter. A panegyric upon oats. Of all the grain our nation yields in orchard, gardens, or in fields, there is a grain which, though tis common, its worth till now was known to no man. Not serious sickle eerie did crop a grain with ears of greater hope, and yet this grain, as all must own, to grooms and hostlers well is known, and often has without disdain in musty barn and manger lane, as if it had been only good to be for birds and beasts the food. But now by new inspired force, it keeps alive both man and horse. Then speak, my muse, for now I guess ye in what it is thou wouldst express. It is not barley, rye, nor wheat, that can pretend to do the feat. Tis oats, bare oats, that is become the health of England, bane of Rome, and wonder of all Christendom. And therefore oats has well deserved to be from musty barn preferred, and now in royal court preserved, that like Hesperian fruit, oats may be watched and guarded night and day, which is but just retaliation for having guarded a whole nation. Hence every lofty plant that stands twixt barrack walls and over sands, the oak itself, which well we style the pride and glory of our isle, must strike and wave its lofty head. And now salute an Odin reed, for surely oats deserves to be exalted far above any tree. The Egyptians once, though it seems odd, did worship onions for their god, and poor peel garlic was with them esteemed beyond the richest gem. What would they then have done, think ye, had they but had such oats as we, oats of such known divinity? Since then such good by oats we find, let oats at least be now enshrined, or in some sacred press enclosed, be only kept to be exposed, and all fond relics else shall be deemed objects of idolatry. Poplings may tell us how they saw their garnet pictured on a straw. Twas a great miracle, we know, to see him drawn in little so, but on an oaten stalk there is a greater miracle than this, a visage which, with comely grace, did twenty garnets now outface, nay, to the wonder to add more, declare unheard of things before and thousand misrise does unfold, as plain as oracles of old, by which we steer affairs of state, and stave off Britain's sullen fate. Let's then, in honor of the name of Oates, enact some solemn game, where Odin pipe shall us inspire beyond the charms of Orpheus' lyre, stone, stocks, and airy senseless thing to Oates shall dance, to Oates shall sing, whilst woods amaz to Tieco's ring, and that this hero's name may not, when they are rotten, be forgot, will hang achievements o'er their dust, a debt we owe to merits just so if deserts of oats we prize, let oats still hang before our eyes, thereby to raise our contemplation, oats being to this happy nation a mystic emblem of salvation. The Miracle To the tune of O youth, thou hadst better been starved at nurse. I, You Catholic statesmen and churchmen, rejoice, and praise heaven's goodness with heart and with voice, none greater on earth or in heaven than she. Some say she's as good as the best of the three. Her miracles bold were famous of old, but a braver than this was never yet told. Tis pity that every good Catholic living had not heard on before the last day of Thanksgiving. 2. In Lombardy land great Medina's duchess, 3, was snatched from her empire by death's cruel clutches. When to heaven she came, for thither she went, each angel received her with joy and content. On her knees she fell down, before the bright throne, and begged that God's mother would grant her one boon, give England a son, at this critical point, to put little Orange's nose out of joint. 3. As soon as Our Lady had heard her petition, to Gabriel, the angel, she straight gave commission, she plucked off her smock from her shoulders divine, 
and charged him to hasten to England's fair queen. Go to the royal dame, to give her the same, and bid her forever to praise my great name, for I, in her favor, will work such a wonder, shall keep the most insolent heretics under. 4. Tell James, my best son, his part of the matter must be with this only to cover my daughter. Let him put it upon her with his own royal hand, then let him go travel to visit the land, and the spirit of love shall come from above, though not as before, in form of a dove, yet down he shall come in some likeness or other, perhaps like Count Dada, and make her a mother. V. The message with hearts full of faith was received, and the next news we heard was Q. M. Conceived. You great ones converted, per-cheated dissenters, grave judges, lords, bishops, and commons consenters, you commissioners all ecclesiastical, from M. 4. The dutiful to see. 5. The tall. Pray he then to strengthen her majesty's placket, for if this trick fail, beware of your jacket. Footnote 3. Maria Laura Dest. Footnote 4. John, Earl of Mulgrave, Lord Chamberlain of the Household. Footnote 5. William, Earl of Craven. The Patriots. Read about the year 1700. I, You worthy patriots, go on to heal the nation's sores, find all men's faults out but your own, begin good laws, but finish none, and then shut up your doors. 2. Fail not our freedom to secure, and all our friends disband, and send those men to t'other shore who are such fools as to come o'er to help this grateful land. 3. And may the next that hears us pray, and in distress relieve us, go home like those without their pay, and with contempt be sent away for having once believed us. 4. And if the French should e'er attempt this nation to invade, may they be damned that list again, but lead the famed militia on, to be like us betrayed. V. As for the crown you have bestowed, with all its limitations, the meanest prince in Christendom would never stir a mile from home to govern three such nations. 6. The king himself, whom once you called your savior in distress, you in his first request denied, and then his royal patience tried with a canting sham address. 7. Ye are the men that to be chose wild be at no expenses, who love no friends, nor fear no foes, have ways and means that no man knows to mortify your senses. 8. Ye are the men that can condemn by laws made ex post facto, who can make knaves of honest men, and married women turn again to be Virgo and intacta. 9. Go on to purify the court, and damn the men of places till decently you send them home, and get yourselves put in their room, and then you'll change your faces. X. Go on for to establish trade, and mend our navigation, let India invade, and borrow on funds will ne'er be paid, and bankrupt all the nation. 11. Tis you that calculate our gold, and with a senseless tone, Vote that you never understood, that we might take them if we wowed or let them all alone. 12. Your missives you send round about with Mr. Speaker's letter, to fetch folks in, and find folks out, which fools believe without dispute, because they know no better. 13. With borrowed ships, and here men, the Irish to reduce, who will be paid the Lord knows when, tis hopped wiener you want again, you'll think of that abuse. 14. You laid shem taxes on our malt, on salt, on glass, on leather, to wheedle coxcombs into lend, and like true cheats, you dropped that fund, and sunk them all altogether. 15. And now why are piously inclined the needy to employ? You'd better much your time bestow to pay neglected debts you owe, 
which makes them multiply. 16. Against profaneness you declared, and then the bill rejected, and when the arguments appeared they were the worst that e'er were heard, and best that we expected. 17. Twas voted once that for the sin of whoring men should die all, but then it was wisely thought again. The house would quickly grow so thin, they durst not stand the trial. 18. King Charles II knew your aim, and places gave, and pensions, and had King William's money flown, his majesty would soon have known your conscience's dimensions. 19. But he has wisely given you up to work your own desires, and laying arguments aside, as things that have in vain been tried, to fasting calls and prayers. Chorus. Your hours are choicely employed, your petitions lie all on the table, with funds insufficient, and taxes deficient, and deponents innumerable. For shame leave this wicked employment, reform both your manners and lives. You were never sent out to make such a route, go home, and look after your W. S. Justice in masquerade, or Scroggs upon Scroggs. A butcher's sons judge capital per Protestants for to enthrall, and England to enslave, sirs. Lose both our laws and lives we must when to do justice we entrust so known and errant knaves, sirs. Some hungry priests he did once fell, with mighty strokes sent them to hell, sent presently away, sirs. Would you know why? The reasons plain they had no English nor French coin to make a longer stay, sirs. The Pope to purgatory sends who either money have nor friends, and this he's not alone, sirs, for our judge to mercies no inclined, lest gold change conscience and his mind, you are infallibly gone, sirs. His father once exempted was out of all juries, six, why? Because he was a man of blood, sirs, and why the butcherly son, forsooth, showed now be jury and judge both cannot be understood, sirs. The good old man with knife and knocks made harmless sheep and stubborn ox stooped to him in his fury. But the brid son, like greasy oaf, kneels down and worships golden calf, and so does all the jury. Better thou dst been at father's trade, an honest livelihood to have made, in lampering bulls with collars, then to thy country prove unjust, first sell, and then betray thy trust, for so many hard ricks dollars. Priest and physician thou didst save from gallows, fire, and from the grave, for which we can't endure thee, the one can ne'er absolve thy sins, and to each other, though he now begins, of navery ne'er can cure thee. But lest we all showed end his life, and with a keen wet chopping knife and a thousand pieces cleave him, let the parliament first him undertake, they'll make the rascal stink at stake, and so, like a knave, let's leave him. Footnote 6. By an old law, butchers and surgeons were unable to serve on juries. The brawny bishop's complaint. To the tune of. Packington's pound. I. When B. T. 7. Perceived the beautiful dames, who flocked to the chapel of holy S. T. James, on their lovers the kindest looks did bestow, and smilled not on him, while he bellowed below, to the princess he went with pious intent this dangerous ill in the church to prevent. O oh, madam, quoth he, our religion is lost if the ladies thus ogle the knights of the toast. 2. Your highness observes how I labor and sweat their affections to raise, and new flames to beget, and sure when I preach all the world, will agree that their ears and their eyes should be pointed on me. But now I can't find one beauty so kind as my parts to regard, or my presence to mind. Nay, I scarce have a sight of any one face but those of old Oxford and ugly Argloss. 3. These sorrowful matrons, 
with hearts full of truth, repent for the manifold sins of their youth, the rest with their tattle my harmony spoil, and burr, ton, and say, k, kstan, and b, lu, eight, their minds entertain with thoughts so profane tis a mercy to find that at church they contain, evan hen, hams, nine, shapes their weak fancies entice, and rather than me they will ogle device. 10. 4. These practices, madam, my preaching disgrace, shall laymen enjoy the just rights of my place? Then all may lament my condition for hard, to thresh in the pulpit without a reward. Then pray condescend such disorders to end, and from their ripe vineyards such laborers send, or build up the seats, that the beauties may see the face of no brawny pretender but me. V. The princess, by rude importunities pressed, though she laughed at his reasons, allowed his request, and now Britain's nymphs in a Protestant reign are locked up at Prayares like the virgins in Spain, and all are undone as sure as a gun, whenever a woman is kept like a nun. If any kind man from bondage will save her, the last in gratitude grants him the favor. Footnote 7. Gilbert Burnett, Bishop of Salisbury, who in 1674 was preacher at the Rolls Chapel. Footnote 8. Burlington, Anglesey, Kingston, and Boyle. Footnote 9, Henningham. Footnote 10, The Vice-Chamberlain. The Poor Blind Boy. By Collie Gibber, 1749. Oh, say, what is that thing called light, which I can ne'er enjoy? What is the blessing of the sight? Oh, tell your poor blind boy. You talk of wondrous things you see. You say the sun shines bright. I feel his warmth. But how can he e'er make it day or night? My day or night myself I make, Weener I sleep or play, And could I always keep awake, It would be always day. With heavy sighs I often hear you mourn my hopeless woe, But sure with patience I may bear a loss I do not know. Then let not what I cannot have my peace of mind destroy, While thus I sing, I am a king, Although a poor blind boy. The Innis Killing Regiment. I. I will sing in the praise, if you'll lend but an ear, of the first royal regiment, but don't think I jeer if I vow and protest they are as brave men and willing, as ever old Rome bred, or new in a skilling. 2. Oh, had you but seen them march with that decorum that no Roman triumph could eerie go before em, some smoking, some whistling, all meaning no harm, like Yorkshire attorneys coming up to a term. 3. On bobtails, on longtails, on trotters, on pacers, on pads, hawkers, hunters, on higglers, on racers, you'd ha swore knight and squires, prigs, cuckolds, and panders. Appeared all like so many great Alexanders. 4. Whose warriors who thorough all dangers durst go. Most bravely despising blood, battle, and foe, were mounted on steeds the last Lord Mayor's Day, from Tiki, Spain, Barbary, Coach, Cart, and Dre. The, twas that very day their high prowess was shown in guarding the king through the fireworks o t h town. Though sparks were unhorsed and their lacked coats were spoiled, they dreaded no squibs of men, women, or child. Six, the cornet whose nose, though it spoke him no Roman, was mounted that day on a horse that feared no man, no wounds, for all ory his trappings so sumptuous he had tied squibs and crackers. Twas mighty presumptuous. Seven. For note his design, faith, tis worth your admiring, twas to let the queen essay how his horse could stand firing, not wisely considering her majesty's married, and he had been hanged if the queen had miscarried. 8. All hearts true as steel, 
but of all brave fellows th attorney for my money who was so zealous, he went for the lease of his own house from home, to make a new covering for the troop's kettle drum. 9. The lieutenant being thrown by his genet, his son-in-law fancying some treachery in it, gave the oaths to the horse, which the beast took, they say, but swore by the lord they went down like chopped hay. X. He the nag of an Irish papist did buy, so doubting his courage and his loyalty, he taught him to eat with his oats gunpowder and pranced to the tune of Lily Bolero. 11. 11. The tub-preaching saint was so furious a blade, and jackboots both day and night preached, slept, and prayed, to call them to prayers he need no saint's bell, for gingling his spurs chimmed them all in as well. 12. A noble stout scrivener that now shall be nameless, that in day of battle he might be found blameless, a war-horse of wood from duck carver buys, to learn with more safety the horse exercise. 13. With one eye on's honor, the other on's gain, he fixes a desk on Bucephalus' mane, that so by that means he his prancer bestriding, might practice at once both his riding and riding. 14. But oh, the sad news which their joy now confounds, to Ireland their own, like the last trumpet sounds, Lord, Lord, how this sets them awaiting petitions, and thinking of nothing but terms and conditions. 15. Oh, who will march for me? Speak any that dare, a horse and an hundred pounds for him, that's fair. Dear courtiers, excuse me from Teagland and slaughter, and take what you please, sir, my wife or my daughter. 16. Some feigned themselves lame, some feigned themselves clapped, at last finding all themselves by themselves trapped, the king most unanimously they addressed, and told him the truth, twas all but a jest. 17. A jest. Quoth the king, and with that the king smilled. Come, it any re shall be said such a jest shall be spoiled. Therefore I dismiss you. In peace all depart, for it was more your goodness than my desert. 18. Thus happily freed from the dreadful vexation of being defenders of this, or that nation, they kissed royal fist, and were drunk all for joy, and broke all their swords, and cried vive le roi. Footnote 11. The refrain of a celebrated political song. A ballad on the fleet. Aye. A mighty great fleet. The like was ne'er seen since the reign of K. William and Mary the Q. Dot designed the destruction of France to have been, which nobody can deny, etc. 2. The fleet was composed of English and Dutch, for men and for guns there was never seen such, nor so little done when expected so much, which, etc. 3. One hundred ships which we capital call, with frigates and tenders, and yachts that were small, went out, and did little or nothing at all, which, etc. 4. Two hundred and sixty thousand five hundred and six lusty men, had they chinked to have met with the French fleet, oh, then, as they beat em last year, so they'd beat em again, which, etc. V. Six thousand great guns and seventy-eight more, as good and as great as ever did roar, it had been the same thing had they all been ashore, which, etc. 6. But T, twelve, now must command them no more. We tried of what metal he was made of before. It's safer for him on the land for to whore, which, etc. 7. For a bullet perhaps from the loud cannon's breach, which makes no distinction betwixt poor and rich, instead of his dog might have taken his bitch, which, etc. 8. But are the C, C, 
are, is chose his fine self and his fleet to the sea to expose, but he'll have a care how he meets with his foes, which, etc. 9. He had sea kernels of the nature of otter, which either might serve by land or by water, but of what they have done we have heard no great matter, which, etc. X. In the month of May last they sailed on the main, and now in September they come back again with the loss of some ships, but in battle none slain, which, etc. Footnote 12, probably George, Viscount Torrington, first lord of the Admiralty in 1727, on seeing Mr. Fox and Mr. Hastings at Cheltenham. And read it Hastingus, Pocatus Regibus Indi, Anglorumiti Pesito Nomini, Edi Imperio, Eki Silit Vulpus, Anasake Fabala Berki, Fauchibus Herat, Ehu Dick Age, Dick Sheridan. From Eastern Climes, Lowell Hastings. Late returned, his struggles ended, and his fame well earned, illustrious state man. 13. To a distant age thy name shall live and grace th historic page. Their licenses falsehoods, 14, shall no more prevail, nor Dodsley publish, 15, Edmund's annual tale. When France, exulting, deemed our ruin near, and Hyder's progress struck each chief with fear, when hostile nations pressed in league combined, collected, firm, and dauntless was thy mind, inspired by Hastings, Coote, 16, the seasons braved, embarked his suckers, and a kingdom saved. Goddard, 17, at his command our standard bore through lands to England's sons unknown before. While Popham's victories riced our country's fame and fixed in realms remote the British name. The suit for peace, 18, to Gwalior's fall is due. And Gwalior's capture long was Hastings' view. History shall tell how close the scene of blood, when to a world opposed Britannia stood. No conquest Gallia claims on India's coast, no splendid triumphs can the Belgian boast, for millions wasted, 19, and a navy lost. The keen Murata and the fierce Mysore their league dissolve, and give the contest o'er, and peace restored, Ian Partions, though late, twenty, that Hastings' firmness has preserved the state. Succeeding ages this great truth shall know, a truth recorded by a generous foe, twenty-one, that England's genius, in a luckless hour for Gallic schemes, gave Hastings a sovereign power. Footnote thirteen. Pitt, who moved the address upon the peace in Lord Shelburne's administration, declared, in the course of his speech, that he had no fears for India while so illustrious a state man as Mr. Hastings directed our councils, and so great a general as Sir Ercoot commanded our armies. This declaration was the more honorable for Mr. Hastings because at that time the absurd prejudices of the Rockingham party had misled half the nation. Footnote 14. It can be remembered with what diligence copies of the reports of the select committee were circulated under the sanction of the ministry and how many false and abusive libels were given away through the kingdom, tending to depreciate the character of Mr. Hastings, previous to Mr. Fox's bringing in his India bill. Footnote 15. Mr. Burke published a speech almost every year after he came into notice. Footnote 16. The preservation of the British Empire in India depended upon Sir Ercoot's safe arrival at Madras with money and troops at the most dangerous season of the year, when merchant ships seldom venture upon the coast. Footnote 17. General Goddard marched from Cora to Surat, across the continent of Indostan, and after the conclusion of the peace the same army returned to Bengal under the command of Colonel Charles Morgan, through countries which we had formerly little knowledge of. 
Colonel Pierce marched at the head of five regiments of Bengal sepoys from Calcutta to reinforce Sir Ercoot's army at Madras. This brave detachment was distinguished in every action. On the attack of the French lines at Kudlur, one of the regiments was opposed to a French-European regiment, and much of the success of that day is attributed to the spirited exertions of the Bengal detachment. Colonel Pierce, on the conclusion of the peace with Tipu, marched this detachment back to Calcutta, where it was disbanded in the month of January. Footnote 18. The separate peace with Madagi Sindhya was entirely owing to the capture of Gwalior and to the subsequent operations of a detachment formed by Hastings for the express purpose of drawing Sindhya from Guzarat to the defense of his own dominions, and as a certain means of effecting a general peace. Footnote 19. The war in India cost France at least seven million sterling and at the close of it we were in possession of all the French and Dutch settlements on the continent of India, and were besieging their forces in Kudlow when intelligence of the peace in Europe was received at Madras. Footnote 20. The directors were divided at one period in their opinion of Hastings, and Fox and Burke invariably laid great stress upon the circumstance that thirteen directors were of opinion he ought to be recalled in 1783, though ten of the same body, and 428 proprietors, most strenuously supported him. Many of the thirteen who voted his recall in 1783 were in the direction when he received a unanimous vote of thanks for his long, faithful, and important services. Footnote 21, Monsieur Law, Governor of Pondicherry, in a memoir addressed to the French minister, says, In an evil hour for France the English East India Company appointed Mr. Hastings governor of Bengal, and Monsieur Suffrian, in a letter to Hastings, relative to his treatment of English prisoners, says that he wishes to explain the motives of his conduct to one, of whom all the world speaks well. And surely a compliment of this kind was never paid with more justice to any individual than to Warren Hastings. Throughout India and Europe, the character of no man was more generally known or more universally respected. An imitation of Horace Book II, Ode 16. Written by Warren Hastings on his passage from Bengal to England in 1785. Addressed to John Shore, E.S.Q. For ease the harassed seaman prays, when equinoctial tempests raise the cape's surrounding wave, when hanging o'er the reef, he hears the cracking mast, and sees or fears, beneath, his watery grave. For ease the slow marauder spoils, and hardier sick erratic toils, while both their ease forego, for ease, which neither gold can buy nor robes, nor gems, which oft belie the covered heart bestow. For either gold nor gems combat can heal the soul, or suffering mind, lo, where their owner lies, perched on his couch distemper breathes, and care like smoke, in turbid wreaths, round the gay ceiling flies. He who enjoys, nor covets more, the lands his father held before, is of true bliss possessed, let but his mind unfettered tread far as the paths of knowledge lead and wise as well as blessed. No fears his peace of mind annoy less printed lies his fame destroy, which labored years have won, nor packed committees break his rest, nor avarice sends him forth in quest of climes beneath the sun. Short is our span, then why engage in schemes, for which man's transient age was ne'er by fate designed? Why slight the gifts of nature's hand? What wanderer from his native land e'er left himself behind? The restless thought, and wayward will, and discontent attend him still, nor quit him, while he lives. At sea care follows in the wind, at land it mounts the pad behind, or with the postboy drives. 
He would happy live today must laugh the present ills away, nor think of woes to come, for come they will or soon or late, since mixed at best is man's estate, by heaven's eternal doom. To ripened age Clive lived renowned, with lax enriched, with honors crowned, his valors well in need, too long, alas! He lived to hate his envied lot, and died, twenty-two, too late, from life's oppression freed. An early death was Eliot's, twenty-three, doom. I saw his opening virtues bloom, and manly sense unfold, too soon to fade. I bade the stone record his name midst hordes unknown, unknowing what it told. To thee, perhaps, the fates may give, I wish they may, in health to live, herds, flocks, and fruitful fields, thy vacant hours in mirth to shine. With these, the muse already thine her present bounties yields. For me, O sure, I only claim to merit, not to seek for fame, the good and just to please, a state above the fear of want, domestic love, heaven's choicest grant, health, leisure, peace, and ease. Footnote 22. Lord Clive committed suicide 1774. Footnote 23. Mr. Eliot died in October, 1778, on his way to Nainpur, the capital of Mudiji's Bufla's dominions, being deputed on an embassy to that prince by the governor-general and council. A monument was erected to his memory on the spot where he was buried, and the Marathas have since built a town there, called Eliot Gunge, or Eliot's Town. Epitaph on Dr. Johnson. Here lies poor Johnson. Reader, have a care, tread lightly, lest you rouse a sleeping bear, religious, moral, generous, and humane he was, but self-sufficient, rude, and vain, ill-bred and overbearing in dispute, a scholar and a Christian, yet a brute. Would you know all his wisdom and his folly, his actions, sayings, mirth, and melancholy? Boswell and Thrale, retailers of his wit, will tell you how he wrote, and talked, and coughed and spit. Verses upon the road. Facet Indignatio. An unpublished poem, by David Garrick, to Lord John Cavendish. Whilst all with sighs their way pursue from Chatsworth's blessed abode, my mind still fires, my lord, at you, and thus bursts out an ode. Forgive my frenzy, good Lord John, for passion's my Apollo, sweet Hebe says, when sense is gone, that nonsense needs must follow. Like Indian knife, or highland sword, your words have hewn and hacked me, whilst Quinn, a rebel to his lord, like his own Falstaff backed me. In vain I bounce, and fume, and fret, swear Shakespeare is divine, Fitzherbert, twenty-four, can a while forget his pains to laugh at mine. Lord Frederick, George, and eke his grace, my honest zeal deride, nay, Hubert's melancholy face smirks on your lordship's side. With passion, zeal, and punch misled, why goad me on to strife? Why send me to a restless bed and disappointed wife? This my reward, and this from you. Is thus you bowmen, twenty-five, treat, who eats more toads than you know who each night did strawberries eat? Did I not mount the Dundron chaise and sweat for many a mile? And gave his grace's skill much praise, grinning a ghastly smile. Did I not elsewhere risk my bones my lord duke's freaks took pride in? Did I not trot down hills of stones, and call it pleasant riding? Did I not all your feats proclaim, nor once from duty shrink? In flattery I sunk my fame, a bowman e'en in drink. Did I not oft my conscience force, against its dictates swear? Have I not praised Lord George's horse? Nay, e'en your lordship's mare? Did I not oft, 
in rain and wind, o'er hills, through valleys roam, when wiser folk would lag behind, and spaniels stayed at home? Have I not with your natives fed the worst of all my labors, and ventured both my ears and head amongst your scalping neighbors? Not Quinn's more blessed with Calipi, Fitzherbert in his puns, Lord John in contradicting me, Lord Frederick with his nuns. Then I am blessed in Shakespeare's muse. Each drop within my standish, each drop of blood for him I'll lose, as firm as any seeing dish. As wig you gain the world's applause, for once a Tory shine, a Tory once in Shakespeare's cause, and feel his right divine. Attack my wife, my patenteer, do deeds without a name. Burn, kill, or ravish, Lord. But spare, oh, spare my Shakespeare's fame. Did not Dean Barker, 26, wisely preach, opinion may be sin? Did not his sermon wisely teach to cleanse ourselves within? From infidelity awake. Oh, melt your heart of stone, conceal your errors for my sake, or mend them for your own. Footnote 24, William Fitzherbert, E.S.Q., of Tissington, M.P. for Derby. Footnote 25, the name of a character in Lethe. Footnote 26, the Rev. William Barker, M.A., Dean of Raphoy, he died about 1777. Satter on the Scots. By Mr. Cleveland. Come, keen iambics, with your badger's feet, and badger-like bite till your teeth do meet. Help ye, tart satirists, to imp my rage, with all the scorpions that should whip this age. But that there's charm in verse, I would not quote the name of Scott without an antidote, unless my head were red, that I might brew invention there that might be poisoned too. Were I a drowsy judge, whose dismal note disgorges halters, as a juggler's throat does ribbons, could I in Sir Empiric's tone speak pills in phrase, and quack destruction, or roar like Marshall, that Geneva bull, hell and damnation a pulpit full, yet to express a Scot, to play that prize, not all those mouth granados can suffice. Before a Scot can properly be cursed, I must, like Hocus, swallow daggers first. Scots are like witches, do but wet your pen, scratch till the blood comes, they'll not hurt you then. Now as the martyrs were compelled to take the shapes of beasts, like hypocrites at stake, I'll bait my Scot so, yet not cheat your eyes, a Scot within a beast is no disguise. No more let Ireland brag her harmless nation fosters no venom since that Scot's plantation, nor can our feigned antiquity obtain, since they came in England has wolves again. Nature herself does Scotchmen beasts confess, making their country such a wilderness, a land that brings in question and suspense God's omnipresence, but that Charles came thence, but that Montrose and Crawford's royal band atten their sin, and christen half the land. Nor is it all the nation has these spots, there is a church as well as Kirk of Scots, as in a picture where the squinting paint shoes fiend on this side and on that side saint, he that saw Helen's melancholy dream and in the twilight of his fancy's theme, scarred from his sins, repented in affright, had he viewed Scotland had turned proselyte. A land where one may pray with cursed intent. Oh, may they never suffer banishment. Had Cain been Scot, God would have chanted his doom, not forked him wander, but confined him home. Like Jews they spread, and as infection fly, as if the devil had ubiquity. Hence tis they live as rovers, and defy this or that place rags of geography. Their citizens O.T.H. world, they're all in all, Scotland's a nation epidemical. And yet they ramble not to learn the mode, how to be drayest, or how to lisp abroad, 
to return knowing in the Spanish shrug, or which of the Dutch states a double jug resembles most in belly or in beard, the card by which the mariners are steered. No. The Scots aren't fight, and fight to eat. Their ostrich stomachs make their swords their meat. Nature with Scots as two drawers has dealt, who used to string their teeth upon their belt. Not gold, nor acts of grace, to steal must tame the stubborn Scot, a prince that would reclaim rebels by yielding does like him. Or worse, who saddled his own back to shame his horse. Was it for this you left your leaner soil, thus to lard Israel with Egypt's spoil? Lord, what a goodly thing is want of shirts! How a Scotch stomach and no meat converts! They wanted food and raiment, so they took religion for their seamstress and their cook. Unmask them well, their honors and estate, as well as conscience, are sophisticate. Shrive but their titles, and their money poise, a laird in twenty pence, twenty-seven, pronounced with noise, when construed, but for a plain yeoman go, and a good sober two pence, and well so. Hence then, you proud impostors, get you gone, you picks and gentry and devotion, you scandal to the stock of verse, a race able to bring the gibbet in disgrace. Hyperbolus by suffering did traduce the ostracism, and shammed it out of use. The Indian that heaven did forswear because he heard some Spaniards were there. Had he but known what Scots in hell had been, he would, Erasmus-like, have hung between. My muse has done. A voider for the nonce. I wrong the devil should I pick the bones. That dish is his, for when the Scots decease, hell, like their nation, feeds on barnacles. A Scot, when from the gallows tree got loose, drops into sticks, and turns a solemn goose. 28. Footnote 27. Ten pence Scots was a penny English. Footnote 28. Compare with this the first of the two political squibs published in the Angerville reprint series, too. The Marseillaise. Footnote, written and composed by Roger Delisle. This translation has been attributed to Lord Auckland. Ye sons of France, awake to glory. Hark! Hark! What myriads bid you rise? Your children, wives, and grandsires hoary, behold their tears, and hear their cries. Shall hateful tyrants, mischief-breeding, with hireling hosts, a ruffian band, affright and desolate the land? while peace and liberty lie bleeding? To arms, to arms, ye brave, th avenging sword unsheath, march on, march on, all hearts resolved on victory or death. Now, now, the Dangrau storm is rolling which treats rouse kings, confederate, raise, the dogs of war, let loose, are howling, and lo, our fields and cities blaze, and shall we basely view the ruin, while lawless force, with guilty stride, spreads desolation far and wide, with crimes and blood his hands embrewing? To arms, ye brave, etc. With luxury and pride surrounded, the vile and satiate despots dare, their thirst of power and gold unbounded, to meet and vend the light and air. Like beasts of burden would they load us, like gods would bid their slaves adore. But man is man, and who is more? Then shall they longer lash and goad us? To arms, ye brave, etc. O liberty! Can man resign thee, once having felt thy generous flame? Can dungeons, bolts, and bars confine thee, or whips thy noble spirit tame? Too long the world has wept, bewailing that falsehood's dagger tyrants wield. But freedom is our sword and shield, and all their arts are unavailing. To arms, ye brave, etc. 
a dirge. Bow the head, thou lily fair, bow the head in mournful guise, sickly turn thy shining white, bend thy stalk, and never rise. Shed thy leaves, thou lovely rose, shed thy leaves, so sweet and gay, spread them wide on the cold earth, quickly let them fade away. Fragrant woodbine, all untwine, all untwine from yonder bower, drag thy branches on the ground, stain with dust each tender flower. For woe is me! The gentle knot that did in willing durance bind my happy soul to hers for life by cruel death is now untwined. Her head, with dim, half-closed eyes, is bowed upon her breast of snow, and cold and faded are those cheeks that won't with cheerful red to glow. Mute, mute, is that harmonious voice that won't to breathe the sounds of love, and lifeless are those beauteous limbs that with such ease and grace did move. And I, of all my bliss bereft, lonely and sad must ever moan, dead to each joy the world can give, alive to memory alone. Finus. Introduction. The following curious collection I have gathered together during several years reading in out-of-the-way corners. Manuscripts, in public and private libraries, old books picked up on dusty bookstalls, or carried away as prizes from the battlefield of the auction room, even pencilings on the inside of tattered bindings, all have been laid under contribution. I trust this medley, or potpourri, of snatches of song grave and gay, will prove as interesting to my readers as they have been to myself. They claim attention on various grounds, some are the works of well-known men, such as Anthony Munday and Warren Hastings, some are bitter political squibs, such, for instance, as the Satire Against the Scots, page 47, some, again, are exquisitely beautiful, as The Dirge, page 53. A few have appeared in different collections, but none of my readers, I will undertake to say, have seen more than a half-dozen or so. With these few words I beg to introduce volume one of the Collectania Adamantae, Edmund Goldsmid, Edinburgh, March 6, 1884. I, Beauties Fort Two, My Bonnie Lass, Thine Eye Three, Anthony Monday's Poem on the Captivity of John Fox Four, Care for Thy Soul V, Megliora Spiro Six, A Letter from the Duke of Monmouth to the King Seven, The King's Answer Eight, An Epitaph on Dundee Nine. The robber robbed X. Ah. The shepherd's mournful fate 11. Verses to a friend 12. A panegyric upon oaths 13. The miracle 14. The patriots 15. Justice and masquerade 16. The brawny bishop's lament 17. The poor blind boy 18. The Innis killing regiment 19. A ballad on the fleet XX. On Mr. Fox and Mr. Hastings 21. An Imitation of Horace, Book 2, Ode 16-22. Epitaph on Dr. Johnson, 23. Verses upon the Road, 24. Satyr on the Scots, 25. The Marseillaise, 26. A Dirge Beauties Fort. From an anonymous MS. Lately in possession of J. P. Collier, Esq. F.S.A. When raging love, with fierce assault, strikes at fair beauty's gate, what army has she to resist and keep her court and state? She calleth first on chastity to lend her help in time, and prudence no less summons she to meet her foes so trim. And female courage she always doth bring unto the wall, to blow the trump in her dismay, fearing her fort may fall. On force of ward she much relies her foe without to keep, and parleyeth with her two bright eyes when they her dyke would leap. 
Yet needless the more she strives, the less she keeps him out, for she hath traitors in her camp that keep her still in doubt. The first and worst of these the flesh, then woman's vanity that still is caught within the mesh of guileful flattery. These traitors ope the gate at length, and in, with sword in hand, came raging love, and all her strength no longer can withstand. Prudence and chastity both to submit unto the foe, and female courage not can do but down her walls must go. She needs must yield her castle strong, and love triumphs once more. It's only what the boy hath done a thousand times before. None may resist his mighty power, and though a boy, and blind, he knows to chase a half-pie hour when maidens must be kinned. My bonny lass, thine eye, by Thomas Lodge, M.D. Footnote, the original of this poem not being within my reach at present, I have inserted Professor Arbor's modern version. My bonny lass, thine eye, so sly, hath made me sorrow so. Thy crimson cheeks, my dear, so clear, have so much wrought my woe. Thy pleasing smiles and grace, thy face, have ravished so my sprites, that life is grown to not through thought of love, which me affrights. For fancy's flames of fire aspire unto such furious power, as but the tears I shed make dead, the brands would me devour. I should consume to not through thought of thy fair shining eye, thy cheeks, thy pleasing smiles, the wiles that forced my heart to die. Thy grace, thy face, the part where art stands gazing still to see the wondrous gifts and power, each hour, that hath bewitched me. Anthony Monday's poem on the captivity of John Fox. Leaving at large all fables vainly ust, all trifling toys that do no truth import. Lo, hear how the end, at length, though long diffused, unfoldeth plainer rare and true report, to glad those minds who seek their country's wealth by proffered pains to enlarge its happy health. At Rome I was when Fox did there arrive. Therefore I may sufficiently express what gallant joy his deeds did there revive in the hearts of those which heard his valiantness, and how the Pope did recompense his pains, and letters gave to move his greater gains. But yet I know that many don't misdoubt that those his pains are fables, and untrue. Not only I in this will bear him out, but divers more that did his patents view. And unto those so boldly I dare say that not but truth John Fox cloth here bure. Besides, there's one was slave with him and thrall lately returned into our native land. This witness can this matter perfect all, what needeth more? For witness he may stand, and thus I end, unfolding what I know. The other man more larger proof can show. Hanos alit arts. The above lines by Anthony Munday are omitted by Hacklet in his reprint of the captivity of John Fox in his. Principal English Voyages, Volume 2, page 136, edition 1598-1600. John Fox, of Woodbridge, gunner of the Three Half Moons, was made prisoner by the Turks in 1563. Escaped with 266 other Christians in 1577. Care for thy soul. Care for thy soul, as thing of greatest price. Made to the endy to taste of power divine, devoid of guilt abhorring sin and vice, apt by God's grace to virtue to incline, care for it so, as by thy wretchless train it be not brought to taste eternal pain. Care for thy corpse, body, but chiefly for soul's sake, not of excess, sustaining food is best to vanquish pride, but comely clothing take. Seek after skill, deep ignorance detest, care so, I say, the flesh to feed and cloth, that thou harm not thy soul and body both. Care for the world, 
to do thy body right. Back not thy w white t to win by wicked ways. Seek not to oppress the weak by wrongful might. To pay thy due, do banish all delays. Care to dispend according to thy store, and in like sort be mindful of the poor. Care for thy soul, as for thy chiefest stay. Care for thy body, for the soul's avail. Care for the world, for body's help alway. Care yet but so as virtue may prevail. Care in such sort, that thou be sure of this. Care keep the knot from heaven and heavenly bliss. Megliora Spiro By Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford Faction that ever dwells in court where wit excels, hath set defiance. Fortune and love have sworn that they were never born of one alliance. Cupid, which doth aspire to be god of desire, swears he. Gives laws, that where his arrows hit, some joy, some sorrow it, fortune no cause. Fortune swears. Weakest hearts, the books of Cupid's arts. Turned with her wheel, since celeste themselves shall prove. Venture hath place in love. Ask them that feel. This discord it begot atheists, that honor not. Nature thought good fortune shall ever dwell in court where wits excel. Love keep the wood. So to the wood went I, with love to live and die. Fortune's forlorn. Experience of my youth made me think humble truth in deserts born. My saint I keep to me, and Joan herself is free, Joan fair and true. She that doth only move passions of love with love. Fortune. Adieu. A letter from the Duke of Monmouth to the King. Discracked, undone, forlorn, made fortune sport, banished your kingdom first, and then your court, out of my places turned, and out of doors, and made the meanest of your sons of whores, the scene of laughter, and the common chats of your salt bitches, and your other brats, forked to a private life, to whore and drink, on my past grandeur and my follies think, would I had been the brat of some mean drab. Whom fear or chance had cows to choke or stab, rather than be the issue of a king, and by him made so wretched scorned a thing. How little cause has mankind to be proud of noble birth, the idol of the crowd. Have I abroad in battle's honor one to be at home dishonorably undone? Marked with a star and garter, and made fine with all those gaudy trifles once called mine, your hobby horses, one, and your joys of state, and now become the object of your hate. But d e sir, I'll be legitimate. I was your darling, but against your will, and know that I will be the people still. And when you're dead, I and my friends, the rout, will with my popish uncle try about, and to my troubles this one comfort bring, next after you, bye, I will be king. Footnote 1. At the age of sixteen he was made master of the horse. The king's answer. Ungrateful boy, I will not call thee son, thou hast thyself unhappily undone and thy complaints serve but to show thee more, how much thou hast in rag thy father's whore. Resent it not, shake not thy idle head, and be no more by clubs and rascals led. Have I made thee the darling of my joys, the prettiest and the loosiest of my boys? Have I so oft sent thee with cost to France, to take new dresses up, and learn to dance? Have I given thee a ribbon and a star, and sent thee like a meteor to the war? Have I done all that royal dad could do? And do you threaten now to be untrue? But say I did with thy fond mother sport, to the same kindness others had resort. Twas my good nature, and I meant her fame, to shelter thee under my royal name. Alas! I never got one brat alone, my mistresses all are by each fop well known, and I still willing all the brats to own. 
I made thee once, tis true, the post of grace, and stuck upon thee every mighty place, each glittering office, till thy heavy brow grew dull with honor, and my power low. I spangled thee with favors, hung thy nose with rings of gold and pearl, till all grew foes by secret envy at thy growing state. I lost my safety when I made thee great. There's not the least injustice to you shown. You must be ruined to secure my throne. Office is but a fickle grace, the badge bestowed by fits, and snatched away in rage, and sure that livery which I give my slaves I may take from him when my Portsmouth raves. Thou art a creature of my own creation, then swallow this without capitulation. If you with feigned wrongs still keep a clutter, and make the people for your sake to mutter, for my own comfort, but your trouble, no, gee, fish, I'll send you to the shades below. An Epitaph on Dundee English by Mr. Dryden O last and best of Scots, who didst maintain thy country's freedom from a foreign reign, new people fill the land now thou art gone, new gods the temples, and new kings the throne. Scotland and thou did each and other live, thou wouldst not her, nor could she thee survive. Farewell, who living didst support the state, and couldst not fall but with thy country's fate. The robber robbed. I. A certain priest had hoarded up a mass of secret gold, and where he might bestow it safe he knew not to be bold. 2. At last it came into his thought to lock it in a chest within the chancel, and he wrote thereon, Hic Deus Est. 3. A merry grig, whose greedy mind did long for such a prey, respecting not the sacred words that on the casket lay. 4. Took out the gold, and blowing out the priest's inscript thereon, wrote, Resurrects it, non est hic, your God is rose and gone. Ah, the shepherd's mournful fate. Ah, the shepherd's mournful fate. When doomed to love, and doomed to languish, to bear the scornful fair one's hate, nor dare disclose his anguish. Yet eager looks, and dying sighs, my secret soul discover, while rapture trembling through my eyes reveals how much I love her. The tender glance, the reddening cheek, or spread with rising blushes, a thousand various ways they speak a thousand various wishes. For, oh, that form so heavenly fair, those languid eyes so sweetly smiling, that artless blush, and modest air, so artfully beguiling. Two, thy every look and every grace so charms weener I view thee, till death overtake me in the chase, still will my hopes pursue thee. Then when my tedious hours are past be this last blessing given, low at thy feet to breathe my last and die in sight of heaven. Footnote 2. Ars Solare Artem. Some verses to a friend who twice ventured on marriage. By Thomas Brown. The husband's the pilot, the wife is the ocean, he always in danger, she always in motion, and he that in wedlock twice hazards his carcass twice ventures the drowning, and faith, that's a hard case. Even at our weapons the females defeat us, and death, only death, can sign our quietus. Not to tell you sad stories of liberty lost, our mirth is all palled, and our measures all crossed. That pagan confinement, that damnable station, suits no other states or degrees in the nation. The Levite it keeps from parochial duty, for who can at once mind religion and beauty? The rich it alarms with expenses and trouble, and a poor beast, you know, can scarce carry double. Twas invented, they tell you, to keep us from falling. Oh, the virtues and graces of shrill caterwauling! How it palls in your gain! But pray, how do you know, sir, 
how often your neighbor breaks in your enclosure. For this is the principal comforts of marriage, you must eat though a hundred have spit in your porridge. If at night you're inactive, or fail in performing, enter thunder and lightning, and bloodshed, next morning, lust the bone of your shanks, O dear Mr. Horner, this comes of your sinning with crape in a corner. Then to make up the breach all your strength you must rally, and labor and sweat like a slave in a gaily, and still you must charge, O blessed condition, though you know, to your cost, you've no more ammunition, till at last the poor fool of a mortified man is unable to make a poor flash in the pan. Fire, flood, and female, begin with a letter, but for all the world's not a farthing the better. Your flood is soon gone, and your fire you must humble, if into flame store of water you tumble. But to cure the damned lust of your wife's titillation, you may use all the engines and pumps in the nation, as well you may pee, out the last conflagration. And thus I have sent you my thoughts of the matter. You may judge as you please. I scorn for to flatter. I could say much more. But here ends the chapter. A panegyric upon oats. Of all the grain our nation yields in orchard, gardens, or in fields, there is a grain which, though tis common, its worth till now was known to no man. Not serious sickle eerie did crop a grain with ears of greater hope. And yet this grain, as all must own, to grooms and hostlers well is known, and often has without disdain in musty barn and manger lane, as if it had been only good to be for birds and beasts the food. But now by new inspired force, it keeps alive both man and horse. Then speak, my muse, for now I guess ye in what it is thou wouldst express. It is not barley, rye, nor wheat, that can pretend to do the feat. Tis oats, bare oats, that is become the health of England, bane of Rome, and wonder of all Christendom. And therefore oats has well deserved to be from musty barn preferred, and now in royal court preserved, that like Hesperian fruit, oats may be watched and guarded night and day, which is but just retaliation for having guarded a whole nation. Hence every lofty plant that stands twixt barrack walls and over sands, the oak itself, which well we style the pride and glory of our isle, must strike and wave its lofty head. And now salute an Odin reed, for surely oats deserves to be exalted far above any tree. The Egyptians once, though it seems odd, did worship onions for their god, and poor peel garlic was with them esteemed beyond the richest gem. What would they then have done, think ye, had they but had such oats as we, oats of such known divinity? Since then such good by oats we find, let oats at least be now enshrined, or in some sacred press enclosed, be only kept to be exposed and all fond relics shall be deemed objects of idolatry. Poplings may tell us how they saw their garnet pictured on a straw. T'was a great miracle, we know, to see him drawn in little so, but on an oaten stalk there is a greater miracle than this, a visage which, with comely grace, did twenty garnets now outface, nay, to the wonder to add more, declare unheard of things before, and thousand misrise does unfold, as plain as oracles of old, by which we steer affairs of state, and stave off Britain's sullen fate. Let's then, in honor of the name of Oates, enact some solemn game, where Odin pipe shall us inspire beyond the charms of Orpheus' lyre, stone, stocks, and airy senseless thing to Oates shall dance, to Oates shall sing, whilst woods amaz to Tieco's ring. And that this hero's name may not, when they are rotten, be forgot, will hang achievements o'er their dust, a debt we owe to merits just so if deserts of oats we prize, let oats still hang before our eyes, thereby to raise our contemplation, 
oaths being to this happy nation a mystic emblem of salvation. The miracle. To the tune of, O youth, thou hadst better been starved at nurse. I, you Catholic statesmen and churchmen, rejoice, and praise heaven's goodness with heart and with voice. None greater on earth or in heaven than she. Some say she's as good as the best of the three. Her miracles bold were famous of old, but braver than this was never yet told. Tis pity that every good Catholic living had not heard on before the last day of thanksgiving. 2. In Lombardy land great Medina's duchess, 3, was snatched from her empire by death's cruel clutches. When to heaven she came, for thither she went, each angel received her with joy and content. On her knees she fell down, before the bright throne, and begged that God's mother would grant her one boon, give England a son, at this critical point, to put little Orange's nose out of joint. 3. As soon as Our Lady had heard her petition, to Gabriel, the angel, she straight gave commission, she plucked off her smock from her shoulders divine, and charged him to hasten to England's fair queen. Go to the royal dame, to give her the same, and bid her forever to praise my great name, for I, in her favor, will work such a wonder, shall keep the most insolent heretics under. 4. Tell James, my best son, his part of the matter must be with this only to cover my daughter. Let him put it upon her with his own royal hand, then let him go travel to visit the land, and the spirit of love shall come from above, though not as before, in form of a dove, yet down he shall come in some likeness or other, perhaps like Count Dada, and make her a mother. V. The message with hearts full of faith was received, and the next news we heard was Q. M. Conceived, you great ones converted, per-cheated dissenters, grave judges, lords, bishops, and commons consenters, you commissioners all ecclesiastical, from M. 4. The dutiful to C. 5. The tall, pray he then to strengthen her majesty's placket, for if this trick fail, beware of your jacket. Footnote 3. Maria Laura Dest. Footnote 4. John, Earl of Mulgrave, Lord Chamberlain of the Household. Footnote 5. William, Earl of Craven. The Patriots. Read about the year 1700. I, You worthy patriots, go on to heal the nation's sores, find all men's faults out but your own, begin good laws, but finish none, and then shut up your doors. 2. Fail not our freedom to secure, and all our friends disband and send those men to t'other shore who are such fools as to come o'er to help this grateful land. 3. And may the next that hears us pray, and in distress relieve us, go home like those without their pay, and with contempt be sent away for having once believed us. 4. And if the French should e'er attempt this nation to invade, may they be damned that list again, but lead the famed militia on, to be like us betrayed. V. As for the crown you have bestowed, with all its limitations, the meanest prince in Christendom would never stir a mile from home to govern three such nations. 6. The king himself, whom once you called your savior in distress, you in his first request denied, and then his royal patience tried with a canting sham address. 7. Ye are the men that to be chose wild be at no expenses, who love no friends, nor fear no foes, have ways and means that no man knows to mortify your senses. 8. Ye are the men that can condemn by laws made ex post facto, who can make knaves of honest men, and married women turn again to be Virgo and intacta. 9. Go on to purify the court, 
and damn the men of places till decently you send them home, and get yourselves put in their room, and then you'll change your faces. X. Go on for to establish trade, and mend our navigation, let India invade, and borrow on funds when there be paid, and bankrupt all the nation. 11. Tis you that calculate our gold, and with a senseless tone, vote that you never understood, that we might take them if we wowed or let them all alone. 12. Your missives you send round about with Mr. Speaker's letter, to fetch folks in, and find folks out, which fools believe without dispute, because they know no better. 13. With borrowed ships, and here men, the Irish to reduce, who will be paid the Lord knows when, tis hopped wiener you want again, you'll think of that abuse. 14. You laid shem taxes on our malt, on salt, on glass, on leather, to wheedle coxcombs into lend, and like true cheats, you dropped that fund, and sunk them all altogether. 15. And now why are piously inclined the needy to employ? You'd better much your time bestow to pay neglected debts you owe, which makes them multiply. 16. Against profaneness you declared, and then the bill rejected, and when the arguments appeared they were the worst that e'er were heard, and best that we expected. 17. Twas voted once that for the sin of whoring men should die all, but then it was wisely thought again. The house would quickly grow so thin, they durst not stand the trial. 18. King Charles II knew your aim, and places gave, and pensions, and had King William's money flown, his majesty would soon have known your conscience's dimensions. 19. But he has wisely given you up to work your own desires, and laying arguments aside, as things that have in vain been tried, to fasting calls and prayers. Chorus. Your hours are choicely employed, your petitions lie all on the table, with funds insufficient, and taxes deficient, and deponents innumerable. For shame leave this wicked employment, reform both your manners and lives. You were never sent out to make such a route, go home, and look after your W. S. Justice in masquerade, or scrogs upon scrogs. A butcher's sons judge capital poor Protestants for to enthrall, and England to enslave, sirs. Lose both our laws and lives we must when to do justice we entrust so known and errant knaves, sirs. Some hungry priests he did once fell, with mighty strokes sent them to hell, sent presently away, sirs. Would you know why? The reasons plain they had no English nor French coin to make a longer stay, sirs. The Pope to purgatory sends who either money have nor friends, in this he's not alone, sirs, for our judge to mercy's no inclined, lest gold change conscience and his mind, you are infallibly gone, sirs. His father once exempted was out of all juries, six, why? Because he was a man of blood, sirs, and why the butcherly son, forsooth, showed now be jury and judge both cannot be understood, sirs. The good old man with knife and knocks made harmless sheep and stubborn ox stooped to him in his fury. But the brid son, like greasy oaf, kneels down and worships golden calf, and so does all the jury. Better thou dst been at father's trade, an honest livelihood to have made, in lampering bulls with collars, then to thy country prove unjust, first sell, and then betray thy trust, for so many hard ricks dollars. Priest and physician thou didst save from gallows, fire, and from the grave, for which we can't endure thee, the one can ne'er absolve thy sins and th other, though he now begins, of navri ne'er can cure thee. But lest we all showed end his life, 
and with a keen wet chopping knife and a thousand pieces cleave him. Let the parliament first him undertake. They'll make the rascal stink at stake. And so, like a knave, let's leave him. Footnote 6. By an old law, butchers and surgeons were unable to serve on juries. The brawny bishop's complaint. To the tune of. Packington's pound. I. When B. T. 7. Perceived the beautiful dames, who flocked to the chapel of holy St. James, on their lovers the kindest looks did bestow, and smilled not on him, while he bellowed below, to the princess he went with pious intent this dangerous ill in the church to prevent. O madam, quoth he, all religion is lost if the ladies thus ogle the knights of the toast. 2. Your highness observes how I labor and sweat their affections to raise, and new flames to beget, and sure when I preach all the world, will agree that their ears and their eyes should be pointed on me. But now I can't find one beauty so kind as my parts to regard, or my presence to mind. Nay, I scarce have a sight of any one face but those of old Oxford and ugly Argloss. 3. These sorrowful matrons, with hearts full of truth, repent for the manifold sins of their youth, the rest with their tattle my harmony spoil, and burr, ton, and say, k, kstan, and b, lu, eight, their minds entertain with thoughts so profane tis a mercy to find that at church they contain. Evan Hen, Hams, Nine, shapes their weak fancies entice, and rather than me they will ogle the vice. 10. 4. These practices, madam, my preaching disgrace. Shall laymen enjoy the just rights of my place? Then all may lament my condition for hard, to thresh in the pulpit without a reward. Then pray condescend such disorders to end, and from their ripe vineyards such laborers send, or build up the seats, that the beauties may see the face of no brawny pretender but me. V. The princess, by rude importunities pressed, though she laughed at his reasons, allowed his request, and now Britain's nymphs in a Protestant reign are locked up at prayers like the virgins in Spain, and all are undone as sure as a gun, whenever a woman is kept like a nun. If any kind man from bondage will save her, the last in gratitude grants him the favor. Footnote 7. Gilbert Burnett, Bishop of Salisbury, who in 1674 was preacher at the Rolls Chapel. Footnote 8. Burlington, Anglesey, Kingston, and Boyle. Footnote 9. Henningham. Footnote 10. The Vice-Chamberlain. The Poor Blind Boy. By Collie Gibber, 1749. Oh, say, what is that thing called light, which I can ne'er enjoy? What is the blessing of the sight? Oh, tell your poor blind boy. You talk of wondrous things you see. You say the sun shines bright. I feel his warmth. But how can he e'er make it day or night? My day or night myself I make, weener I sleep or play. And could I always keep awake, it would be always day. With heavy sighs I often hear you mourn my hopeless woe. But sure with patience I may bear a loss I do not know. Then let not what I cannot have my peace of mind destroy. While thus I sing. I am a king, although a poor blind boy. The Innis Killing Regiment. I, I will sing in the praise, if you'll lend but an ear, of the first royal regiment. But don't think I jeer if I vow and protest they are as brave men and willing, as ever old Rome bred, or new Innis Killing. 2. Oh, had you but seen them march with that decorum that no Roman triumph could eerie go before em, some smoking, some whistling, all meaning no harm like Yorkshire attorneys coming up to a term. 3. 
on bobtails, on longtails, on trotters, on pacers, on pads, hawkers, hunters, on higglers, on racers, Yudhas swore knight and squires, prigs, cuckolds, and panders. Appeared all like so many great Alexanders. 4. Whose warriors who thorough all dangers durst go. Most bravely despising blood, battle, and foe, were mounted on steeds the last Lord Mayor's Day, from Tiki, Spain, Barbary, Coach, Cart, and Dray. The. Twas that very day their high prowess was shown, in guarding the king through the fireworks O.T.H. town. Though sparks were unhorsed and their lacked coats were spoiled, they dreaded no squibs of men, women, or child. 6. The cornet whose nose, though it spoke him no Roman, was mounted that day on a horse that feared no man, no wounds, for all ori his trappings so sumptuous he had tied squibs and crackers. Twas mighty presumptuous. 7. For note his design, faith, tis worth your admiring, twas to let the queen essay how his horse could stand firing, not wisely considering her majesty's married, and he had been hanged if the queen had miscarried. 8. All hearts true as steel, but of all brave fellows th attorney for my money who was so zealous, he went for the lease of his own house from home, to make a new covering for the troops kettle drum. 9. The lieutenant being thrown by his genet, his son-in-law fancying some treachery in it, gave the oaths to the horse, which the beast took, they say, but swore by the lord they went down like chopped hay. X. He the nag of an Irish papist did buy, so doubting his courage and his loyalty, he taught him to eat with his oats gunpowdero, and pranced to the tune of Lily Bolero. 11. 11. The tub-preaching saint was so furious a blade, in jackboots both day and night preached, slept, and prayed. To call them to prayers he need no saint's bell, for gingling his spurs chimmed them all in as well. 12. A noble stout scrivener that now shall be nameless, that in day of battle he might be found blameless. A war horse of wood from duck carver buys, to learn with more safety the horse exercise. 13. With one eye on's honor, the other on's gain, he fixes a desk on Bucephalus' mane, that so by that means he his prancer bestriding, might practice at once both his riding and riding. 14. But oh, the sad news which their joy now confounds, to Ireland their own, like the last trumpet sounds, Lord, Lord, how this sets them awaiting petitions, and thinking of nothing but terms and conditions. 15. Oh, who will march for me? Speak any that dare, a horse and an hundred pounds for him, that's fair. Dear courtiers, excuse me from Teagland and slaughter, and take what you please, sir, my wife or my daughter. 16. Some feigned themselves lame, some feigned themselves clapped, at last finding all themselves by themselves trapped, the king most unanimously they addressed, and told him the truth, twas all but a jest. 17. A jest. Quoth the king, and with that the king smilled. Come, it any re shall be said such a jest shall be spoiled therefore I dismiss you. In peace all depart, for it was more your goodness than my desert. 18. Thus happily freed from the dreadful vexation of being defenders of this, or that nation, they kissed royal fist, and were drunk all for joy, and broke all their swords, and cried vive le roi. Footnote 11. The refrain of a celebrated political song. A ballad on the fleet. Aye. A mighty great fleet. The like was ne'er seen since the reign of K. William and Mary the Q. Designed the destruction of France, 
to have been, which nobody can deny, etc. 2. The fleet was composed of English and Dutch, for men and for guns there was never seen such, nor so little done when expected so much, which, etc. 3. One hundred ships which we capital call, with frigates and tenders, and yachts that were small, went out, and did little or nothing at all, which, etc. 4. Two hundred and sixty thousand five hundred and six lusty men, had they chinked to have met with the French fleet, oh, then, as they beat em last year, so they'd beat em again, which, etc. V. Six thousand great guns and seventy-eight more, as good and as great as ever did roar, it had been the same thing had they all been ashore, which, etc. 6. But T. 12. Now must command them no more. We tried of what metal he was made of before. It's safer for him on the land for to whore, which, etc. 7. For a bullet perhaps from the loud cannon's breach, which makes no distinction betwixt poor and rich, instead of his dog might have taken his bitch, which, etc. 8. But R, the C, C, R, is chose his fine self and his fleet to the sea to expose, but he'll have a care how he meets with his foes, which, etc. 9. He had sea colonels of the nature of otter, which either might serve by land or by water, but of what they have done we have heard no great matter, which, etc. X. In the month of May last they sailed on the main, and now in September they come back again with the loss of some ships but in battle none slain, which, etc. Footnote 12, probably George, Viscount Torrington, First Lord of the Admiralty in 1727. On seeing Mr. Fox and Mr. Hastings at Cheltenham. And read it Hastingus, Pocatus Regibus Indi, Anglorum et Pesito Nomini, Edi Imperio, Eci Silit Vulpus, Anasake Fabula Berkey, Faucibus Herat, Ehu Dick Age, Dick Sheridan. From eastern climes, lo, Hastings. Late returned, his struggles ended, and his fame well earned, illustrious state man. 13. To a distant age thy name shall live and grace th historic page. Their licenses falsehoods, 14, shall no more prevail, nor Dodsley publish, 15, Edmund's annual tale. When France, exulting, deemed our ruin near, and Hyder's progress struck each chief with fear, when hostile nations pressed in league combined, collected, firm, and dauntless was thy mind, and spurred by Hastings, Coot, sixteen, the seasons braved, embarked his succors, and a kingdom saved. Goddard, seventeen, at his command our standard bore through lands to England's sons unknown before, while Popham's victories riced our country's fame and fixed in realms remote the British name. The suit for peace, eighteen, to Gwalior's fall is due and Gwalior's capture long was Hastings' view. History shall tell how close the scene of blood, when to a world opposed Britannia stood. No conquest Gallia claims on India's coast, no splendid triumphs can the Belgian boast, for millions wasted, nineteen, and a navy lost. The keen Murata and the fierce Mysore their league dissolve, and give the contest o'er, and peace restored, Ian Partions, though late, twenty, that Hastings' firmness has preserved the state. Succeeding ages this great truth shall know, a truth recorded by a generous foe, twenty-one, that England's genius, in a luckless hour for Gallic schemes, gave Hastings a sovereign power. Footnote 13. Pitt, who moved the address upon the peace in Lord Shelburne's administration, declared, 
in the course of his speech, that he had no fears for India while so illustrious a state man as Mr. Hastings directed our councils, and so great a general as Sir Ercoot commanded our armies. This declaration was the more honorable for Mr. Hastings because at that time the absurd prejudices of the Rockingham party had misled half the nation. Footnote 14. It can be remembered with what diligence copies of the reports of the select committee were circulated under the sanction of the ministry, and how many false and abusive libels were given away through the kingdom, tending to depreciate the character of Mr. Hastings, previous to Mr. Fox's bringing in his India bill. Footnote 15. Mr. Burke published a speech almost every year after he came into notice. Footnote 16. The preservation of the British Empire in India depended upon Sir Ercoot's safe arrival at Madras with money and troops at the most dangerous season of the year, when merchant ships seldom venture upon the coast. Footnote 17. General Goddard marched from Cora to Surat, across the continent of Indostan, and after the conclusion of the peace the same army returned to Bengal under the command of Colonel Charles Morgan through countries which we had formerly little knowledge of. Colonel Pierce marched at the head of five regiments of Bengal sepoys from Calcutta to reinforce Sir Ercoot's army at Madras. This brave detachment was distinguished in every action. On the attack of the French lines at Kudlor, one of the regiments was opposed to a French-European regiment, and much of the success of that day is attributed to the spirited exertions of the Bengal detachment. Colonel Pierce, on the conclusion of the peace with Tipu, marched this detachment back to Calcutta, where it was disbanded in the month of January. Footnote 18. The separate peace with Madagi Sindhya was entirely owing to the capture of Gwalior and to the subsequent operations of a detachment formed by Hastings for the express purpose of drawing Sindhya from Guzarat to the defense of his own dominions, and as a certain means of effecting a general peace. Footnote 19. The war in India cost France at least seven million sterling and at the close of it we were in possession of all the French and Dutch settlements on the continent of India, and were besieging their forces in Kudlow when intelligence of the peace in Europe was received at Madras. Footnote 20. The directors were divided at one period in their opinion of Hastings, and Fox and Burke invariably laid great stress upon the circumstance that thirteen directors were of opinion he ought to be recalled in 1783, though ten of the same body, and 428 proprietors, most strenuously supported him. Many of the thirteen who voted his recall in 1783 were in the direction when he received a unanimous vote of thanks for his long, faithful, and important services. Footnote 21, Monsieur Law, Governor of Pondicherry, in a memoir addressed to the French minister, says, In an evil hour for France the English East India Company appointed Mr. Hastings governor of Bengal, and Monsieur Suffrian, in a letter to Hastings, relative to his treatment of English prisoners, says that he wishes to explain the motives of his conduct to one, of whom all the world speaks well, and surely a compliment of this kind was never paid with more justice to any individual than to Warren Hastings. Throughout India and Europe, the character of no man was more generally known or more universally respected. An imitation of Horace Book II, Ode 16. Written by Warren Hastings on his passage from Bengal to England in 1785. Addressed to John Shore, E.S.Q. For ease the harassed seamen praise, when equinoctial tempests raise the cape's surrounding wave, when hanging o'er the reef, he hears the cracking mast, and sees or fears, beneath, his watery grave. For ease the slow Murata spoils, and hardier sick erratic toils, while both their ease forego, 
for ease, which neither gold can buy, nor robes, nor gems, which oft belie the covered heart bestow. For either gold nor gems combined can heal the soul, or suffering mind, lo, where their owner lies, perched on his couch distemper breathes, and care like smoke, in turbid wreaths, round the gay ceiling flies. He who enjoys, nor covets more, the lands his father held before, is of true bliss possessed. Let but his mind unfettered tread far as the paths of knowledge lead, and wise as well as blessed. No fears his peace of mind annoy less printed lies his fame destroy, which labored years have won, nor packed committees break his rest, nor avarice sends him forth in quest of climes beneath the sun. Short is our span, then why engage in schemes, for which man's transient age was ne'er by fate designed? Why slight the gifts of nature's hand? What wanderer from his native land e'er left himself behind? The restless thought, and wayward will, and discontent attend him still, nor quit him, while he lives. At sea care follows in the wind, at land it mounts the pad behind, or with the post-boy drives. He would happy live today must laugh the present ills away, nor think of woes to come, for come they will or soon or late, since mixed at best is man's estate, by heaven's eternal doom. To ripened age Clive lived renowned, with lacks enriched, with honors crowned, his valors well and mead, too long, alas. He lived to hate his envied lot, and died, twenty-two, too late, from life's oppression freed. An early death was Eliot's, twenty-three, doom. I saw his opening virtues bloom, and manly sense unfold, too soon to fade. I bade the stone record his name midst hordes unknown, unknowing what it told. To thee, perhaps, the fates may give, I wish they may, in health to live, herds, flocks, and fruitful fields, thy vacant hours in mirth to shine. With these, the muse already thine her present bounties yields. For me, O oh sure, I only claim to merit, not to seek for fame, the good and just to please, a state above the fear of want, domestic love, heaven's choicest grant, health, leisure, peace, and ease. Footnote 22. Lord Clive committed suicide 1774. Footnote 23. Mr. Eliot died in October, 1778, on his way to Nangpur, the capital of Mudiji's Bufla's dominions, being deputed on an embassy to that prince by the governor-general and council. A monument was erected to his memory on the spot where he was buried, and the Marathas have since built a town there, called Elliot Gunge, or Elliot's Town. Epitaph on Dr. Johnson. Here lies poor Johnson. Reader, have a care, tread lightly, lest you rouse a sleeping bear, religious, moral, generous, and humane he was, but self-sufficient, rude, and vain, ill-bred and overbearing in dispute, a scholar and a Christian, yet a brute. Would you know all his wisdom and his folly, his actions, sayings, mirth, and melancholy? Boswell and Thrale, retailers of his wit, will tell you how he wrote, and talked, and coughed, and spit. Verses upon the road. Facet Indignatio. An unpublished poem, by David Garrick, to Lord John Cavendish. Whilst all with sighs their way pursue from Chatsworth's blessed abode, my mind still fires, my lord, at you, and thus bursts out an ode. Forgive my frenzy, good Lord John, for passion's my Apollo, sweet Hebe says, when sense is gone, that nonsense needs must follow. Like Indian knife, or highland sword, your words have hewn and hacked me, whilst Quinn, a rebel to his lord, like his own Falstaff backed me. 
In vain I bounce, and fume, and fret, swear Shakespeare is divine. Fitzherbert, 24, can a while forget his pains to laugh at mine. Lord Frederick, George, and eke his grace, my honest zeal deride. Nay, Hubert's melancholy face smirks on your lordship's side. With passion, zeal, and punch misled, why goad me on to strife? Why send me to a restless bed and disappointed wife? This my reward, and this from you. Is thus you bowmen, twenty-five, treat, who eats more toads than you know who each night did strawberries eat? Did I not mount the Dundron chaise and sweat for many a mile? And gave his grace's skill much praise, grinning a ghastly smile. Did I not elsewhere risk my bones my lord duke's freaks took pride in? Did I not trot down hills of stones, and call it pleasant riding? Did I not all your feats proclaim, nor once from duty shrink? In flattery I sunk my fame, a bowman e'en in drink. Did I not oft my conscience force, against its dictates swear? Have I not praised Lord George's horse? Nay, e'en your lordship's mare? Did I not oft, in rain and wind, o'er hills, through valleys roam, when wiser folk would lag behind, and spaniels stayed at home? Have I not with your natives fed the worst of all my labors, and ventured both my ears and head amongst your scalping neighbors? Not Quinn's more blessed with Calipi, Fitzherbert in his puns, Lord John in contradicting me, Lord Frederick with his nuns. Then I am blessed in Shakespeare's muse. Each drop within my standish, each drop of blood for him I'll lose, as firm as any seeing dish. As wig you gain the world's applause, for once a Tory shine, a Tory once in Shakespeare's cause, and feel his right divine. Attack my wife, my patenteer, do deeds without a name. Burn, kill, or ravish, Lord. But spare, oh, spare my Shakespeare's fame. Did not Dean Barker, 26, wisely preach, opinion may be sin? Did not his sermon wisely teach to cleanse ourselves within? From infidelity awake. Oh, melt your heart of stone, conceal your errors for my sake, or mend them for your own. Footnote 24, William Fitzherbert, E.S.Q., of Tissington, M.P. for Derby. Footnote 25, the name of a character in Lethe. Footnote 26, the Rev. William Barker, M.A., Dean of Raphoy, he died about 1777. Satter on the Scots. By Mr. Cleveland. Come, keen iambics, with your badger's feet, and badger-like bite till your teeth do meet. Help ye, tart satirists, to imp my rage, with all the scorpions that should whip this age. But that there's charm in verse, I would not quote the name of Scott without an antidote, unless my head were red, that I might brew invention there that might be poison too. Were I a drowsy judge, whose dismal note disgorges halters, as a juggler's throat does ribbons, could I in Sir Empiric's tone speak pills and phrase, and quack destruction, or roar like Marshall, that Geneva bull, hell and damnation a pulpit full, yet to express a Scot, to play that prize, not all those mouth granados can suffice. Before a Scot can properly be cursed, I must, like Hocus, swallow daggers first. Scots are like witches, do but wet your pen, scratch till the blood comes, they'll not hurt you then. Now as the martyrs were compelled to take the shapes of beasts, like hypocrites at stake, I'll bait my Scots so, yet not cheat your eyes, a Scot within a beast is no disguise. No more let Ireland brag her harmless nation fosters no venom since that Scots plantation, nor can our feigned antiquity obtain, 
since they came in England has wolves again. Nature herself does Scotchmen beasts confess, making their country such a wilderness, a land that brings in question and suspense God's omnipresence, but that Charles came thence, but that Montrose and Crawford's royal band atten their sin, and christened half the land. Nor is it all the nation has these spots, there is a church as well as Kirk of Scots, as in a picture where the squinting paint shoes fiend on this side and on that side saint, he that saw Helen's melancholy dream, and in the twilight of his fancy's theme, scarred from his sins, repented in affright, had he viewed Scotland had turned proselyte. A land where one may pray with cursed intent, oh, may they never suffer banishment. Had Cain been Scot, God would have chanted his doom, not forked him wander, but confined him home. Like Jews they spread, and as infection fly, as if the devil had ubiquity. Hence tis they live as rovers, and defy this or that place, rags of geography. Their citizens O.T.H. world, they're all in all, Scotland's a nation epidemical. And yet they ramble not to learn the mode, how to be dreist, or how to lisp abroad, to return knowing in the Spanish shrug, or which of the Dutch states a double jug resembles most in belly or in beard, the card by which the mariners are steered. No! The Scots aren't fight, and fight to eat. Their ostrich stomachs make their swords their meat. Nature with Scots as tooth drawers has dealt, who used to string their teeth upon their belt. Not gold, nor acts of grace, to steal must tame the stubborn Scot, a prince that would reclaim rebels by yielding does like him. Or worse, who saddled his own back to shame his horse. Was it for this you left your leaner soil, thus to lard Israel with Egypt's spoil? Lord, what a goodly thing is want of shirts! How a Scotch stomach and no meat converts! They wanted food and raiment, so they took religion for their seamstress and their cook. Unmask them well, their honors and estate, as well as conscience, are sophisticate. Shrive but their titles, and their money poise, a laird in twenty pence, twenty-seven, pronounced with noise, when construed, but for a plain yeoman go, and a good sober twopence, and well so. Hence then, you proud impostors, get you gone, you picks and gentry and devotion, you scandal to the stock of verse, a race able to bring the gibbet in disgrace. Hyperbolus by suffering did traduce the ostracism, and shammed it out of use. The Indian that heaven did forswear because he heard some Spaniards were there. Had he but known what Scots in hell had been, he would, Erasmus-like, have hung between. My muse has done. A voider for the nonce. I wrong the devil should I pick the bones. That dish is his, for when the Scots decease, hell, like their nation, feeds on barnacles. A Scot, when from the gallows tree got loose, drops into sticks, and turns a solid goose. 28. Footnote 27. Ten pence Scots was a penny English. Footnote 28. Compare with this the first of the two political squibs published in the Angervile reprint series, too. The Marseillaise. Footnote, written and composed by Roger Delisle. This translation has been attributed to Lord Auckland. Ye sons of France, awake to glory. Hark! Hark! What myriads bid you rise? Your children, wives, and grandsires hoary, behold their tears, and hear their cries. Shall hateful tyrants, mischief breeding, with hireling hosts, a ruffian band, affright and desolate the land? while peace and liberty lie bleeding? To arms, to arms, ye brave, th avenging sword unsheath, 
March on, march on, all hearts resolved on victory or death. Now, now, the Dangrau storm is rolling which treats Rouse kings, confederate, rays, the dogs of war, let loose, are howling, and lo, our fields and cities blaze, and shall we basely view the ruin, while lawless force, with guilty stride, spreads desolation far and wide, with crimes and blood his hands embrewing? To arms, ye brave, etc. With luxury and pride surrounded, the vile insatiate despots dare, their thirst of power and gold unbounded, to meet and vend the light and air. Like beasts of burden would they load us, like gods would bid their slaves adore. But man is man, and who is more? Then shall they longer lash and goad us? To arms, ye brave, etc. O liberty! Can man resign thee, once having felt thy generous flame? Can dungeons, bolts, and bars confine thee, or whips thy noble spirit tame? Too long the world has wept, bewailing that falsehood's dagger tyrants wield. But freedom is our sword and shield, and all their arts are unavailing. To arms, ye brave, etc. A dirge. Bow the head, thou lily fair, bow the head in mournful guise. Sickly turn thy shining white, bend thy stalk, and never rise. Shed thy leaves, thou lovely rose, shed thy leaves, so sweet and gay. Spread them wide on the cold earth, quickly let them fade away. Fragrant woodbine, all untwine, all untwine from yonder bower. Drag thy branches on the ground, stain with dust each tender flower. For woe is me, the gentle knot that did in willing durance bind my happy soul to hers for life by cruel death is now untwined. Her head, with dim, half-closed eyes, is bowed upon her breast of snow, and cold and faded are those cheeks that won't with cheerful red to glow. Mute, mute, is that harmonious voice that won't to breathe the sounds of love, and lifeless are those beauteous limbs that with such ease and grace did move. And I, of all my bliss bereft, Lonely and sad must ever moan, dead to each joy the world can give, alive to memory alone. Finus.